This is a production of Cornell University. Welcome everybody to uh, episode five this year of the Cornell Turf Show. Uh, we got a golf golf show lined up for you today. Uh, maybe a little bit of Masters preview. Uh, so we're excited about that. Figure out, figure we'll get ahead of uh, all the excitement next week. Um, but as always, uh, joined by Dr. Frank Rossi here. And Frank, you've always got some thoughts for us uh, as we're we're maybe are we maybe getting into the growing season? It's it's always a start start and stop sort of uh, deal here. But what are you thinking these days? Can you see the slides, Carl? Yep. All right, great. Sorry for that trouble. And and uh, I'll do my little thing, Carl. I'll, I'll pass it to you for the minute, and then I'll you can take control of the slides for your wonderful golf presentation that you're going to give it. And of course, you know, again, everybody's dealing with the uh, with the winter damage. Uh, who had it? I mean, everybody who's got this winter damage, that's what they're focused on. We've had a couple of shows about that. I'm going to refer to it a little bit. But it's, it's you know, I hate to say it because I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody, but it's beating a dead horse. You know, we don't warm up. This is going to be a, a tough go uh, moving forward. So, Carl, I always, you know, looking for the cute dog picture or the cute kid picture. Um, you know, we heard you when know, we were chatting with somebody earlier today who who, who had who lost uh, their dog recently. And and for those of us who've had dogs over the years and golf courses with dogs, you always get new recruits. Right. So here, here's a new recruit uh, getting ready, finding their position, getting ready to start running. So, Carl, why don't you start again, taking us through the BMP minute before I get to the weather and some things to consider for the week moving forward. Yeah. So so we love talking about this project with our friends at the P2I Center and at the uh, RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, so we're in this step two, this outreach and education phase. Um, so so for those listening who don't know. We're going to have a field day April 6th next week out at Saratoga National. Uh, this is part of our uh, partnership with the GCSA NY. So we'll be out there talking about a bunch of different things with Superintendent Joe Lucas. That'll be, uh, I'm sure, a fascinating conversation. <laughs> Maybe some yelling and screaming, who knows, but we're definitely going to talk about BMPs as well. Um, so we're going to have our posters. We're going to have uh, full-size posters out there for anybody attending. So, so come on over and, and get a poster. Um, a couple of things on the poster that we're going to talk about today, uh, knowing your nutrient needs, so soil testing, MLSN guidelines, we've talked about this in the past, uh, and spot treating, two ways you can really um, kind of dial in, optimize your fertilizer use or, or pest management. Uh, and, and a way you can do that better is to use available data. And one of the tools I use, which I really like, is the web soil survey. Uh, so this is a free, free tool online. You can just go on your browser, type it in. Uh, we have a tutorial that, that we posted on YouTube if you want to check that out. Um, but there's a lot of great information in here. You can see the soil types on your property, uh, drainage class, sand, silt, clay, depth to water table. There's, there's a ton of information you can gain. Um, and really what we see is this, is this is pretty accurate to what you'll measure in the field. So for those watching in the top right, uh, there's a electromagnetic uh, device that is used to basically predicts sand, silt, and clay um, percentages in the soil. And this was done at Locust Hill many years ago with, with Rick Slattery when he was a superintendent. Uh, so he had a, a person come out and use this device and map the soils. And you can see up there on that top right of that, that uh, map is dark, dark brown. That indicates kind of a high clay content. And to the bottom left of that, uh, you see green, which is more of a sand content. Um, so that was a, a service he paid for and got really good site-specific data. But you'll see in the bottom right of this screen is, is the data straight from the Web Soil Survey. So free online, 
And while it's not perfect, it doesn't match up perfectly with that other image that was uh, ground truth data taken on the ground. It does pretty well, right? You see in the top right, there's this green shaded area. Those are poorly drained soils. And as you move to the left uh, and the, the lower part of the property, you see blue, uh, blue soils. Those end up being better drained soils. So it doesn't match up great, but it's, it's a, a good approximation and might help you target certain areas, certain fairways that you may want to soil sample uh, and treat differently. Sorry, Carl, I jumped the slides there too quickly. Um, I, I will say we're always looking for ways to get easy data. Yeah. You know, we, we're trying to, you know, we, I'm always yelling, you got to be more data driven, uh, but at the same time, we don't make it easy. So I always appreciate hearing about the easy, easy ways to get data. Now let's look uh, where we're at. This is what we're expecting moving forward, right? This is what we're expecting moving forward. Not a lot of accumulation. We heard from our, our weather guy, Artie Gaetano, today, and it looks like we're heading into normal uh, conditions, which is upper 40s and upper 50s. You know, we should be in the 60s this time of year. So we might, we'll, we're going to have a difficult time, at least until Wednesday, uh, Thursday of next week, to start getting any accumulation of heat. Now, looking back, I mean, again, if you think about the map I showed last week and look at the map this week, the colors don't mean the same thing. Red means warmer, but it's everything is below normal. I mean, you can even find places in the Appalachians where they were 14 degrees below normal. The norm, I think, was between six to eight degrees, depending on the way you looked at it across the region, uh, not as far below normal uh, as, you, as you get towards the coast. Now, this, you know, it, it, again, it, when you look at this data, it's a little, it's a little counterintuitive. This is still indicating we're well ahead of normal. And I think it's easy to forget this, uh, that we are still ahead of normal. It was a warm winter. We had only a few really cold months. Um, and so any little uh, progression of heat is really driving the spring conditions really, you know, very quickly. So the spring leaf index anomaly is indicating that up in the Northeast, where they're measuring it, we're 20 days early uh, for things leafing out. Now you get to other parts of the country, there's a lot of other cool regions in the country that are not uh, progressing as rapid. Now, the two inch soil temperature, I think is where the discussion has to go. If you, if you recall last week, uh, and even for the last two weeks, uh, we were at almost our low 50s for the two inch soil temperature. And just yesterday, this is looking like it's in the 30s and 40s at the two inch depth. So obviously that cold weather, obviously the moisture have had significant impacts on these things. So if you were you know, putting out your uh, soil summer patch drench early last week, because you thought the soil temperatures were gonna keep warming, you know, those things are just sort of sitting there and we wonder how long they last. It, getting on too early, is that gonna make you have to make a second application for some of your root diseases. We'll talk about this a little bit more uh, later in the spring for sure. Uh, just a couple of notes. Uh, Matt Elmore was noting that the uh, Japanese stiltgrass is starting to emerge, right? So it used to be everything was about crabgrass. We're going to talk about this, obviously, with the lawn and grounds guys tomorrow. Used to be everything was crabgrass. You get your stuff down for crabgrass, right? And now we're thinking about goosegrass. That's a little bit later. And Japanese stiltgrass 
looks a little bit earlier than crabgrass. So if you have these shaded areas, this is a very strange plant that is likely to cause us a lot of trouble in the future for one big reason. It's a shade tolerant C4 grass, right? It is a grass like crabgrass, but it does well in, in shaded conditions. Okay, well, the conversation about uh, optimum timing for proxy primo seed head suppression, I think is upon us. So everybody I'm sure is considering uh, looking at this data and probably throughout much of New York State in the Northeast have made their spring application. Now I'm hoping many of you who don't have injured turf uh, put a fall application down. I'm still curious and I haven't listened to some of the banter that's been going on. Maybe Bill talked about this in his webinar with the winter kill stuff, but you know, is there any impact on the fall applied proxy with damage? Is there any impact or correlation with um, how things are recovering in the spring? And then what is the move for seed head suppression when you've got injured POA? Because I would still say you need to be in a growing stage, not necessarily in a uh, growth suppression stage. So anything that's suppressing growth doesn't feel right to me uh, because if, you know I'd rather have grass that had seed heads on it uh, that I could manage as a playing surface than having no grass at all. So uh, with that, somebody posted uh, their stock of embarks, which I thought was a nice, funny picture. This person obviously has stocked up over the years, uh, ready for their embark. And again, embarks looking pretty good uh, along the metropolitan New York area. And again, I think with temperatures cold like they are, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of injury, but I don't think this is anything that's going to necessarily be lethal. So, I mean, if you're worried about not doing this on uninjured turf because it's a little cooler, if the model says it's good, I'd rather do it. I, I don't think that uh, the injury is going to be severe. And there are ways of mitigating some of these things with pigmented products as well. Now, Carl, before I pass it off to you, I got a couple more things uh, before we have a golf conversation. One is, again, some of this very exciting work uh, uh, Florence Sessoms is doing out at the University of Minnesota. This is tall fescue and ryegrass as part of this winter injury work. And this is what they're calling a false spring work. So, you know, their false spring evaluation of tall fescue and perennial ryegrass. So what they do is uh, they tent these areas to get them to warm up right? And then expose them to cold temperature again. And so here is some of the original data where, you know, there's no tenting. This has been in the greenhouse now. There's no tenting. There's no warming up before a cold period. So here is a day of fall, spring, really warmed up with back to cold temperatures in the middle. And you can see some of the tall fescue injured. And then of course you get the five days of fall spring where you're getting warming conditions and you see the tall fescues injured even more. Now this is really corollary to what I showed the last couple of weeks about how annual bluegrass will break dormancy in the spring, how will break dormancy under warm, wet conditions, right? Those crown hydration conditions. So we're starting to see, I believe, a lot of what is ultimately going to explain some of the damage that we're seeing that these systems have just warmed up the dormancy breaks, uh, cold temperatures return, and you see some damage associated with those cold temperatures. So now the question is, and everybody's talking about this, 
uh, is the time, you know, can we be seeding? And we're starting to see this happens to be uh, some Kentucky bluegrass seed starting to pop. And I thought it was really interesting. Zach Riker was talking about some seeding work he's done in the past. And you can see this is from 30 years ago when he was an extension agent and doing early extension work at Purdue. This is indicating, at least with things like bluegrass, tall fescue, and ryegrass, that earlier seedings tend to have a little bit more success than waiting, right? Now, Kentucky bluegrass is a little bit different than creeping bankgrass and a little bit different, of course, than annual bluegrass, uh, where because it takes so long to germinate, right? You're looking at a very long germination period, 20 days uh, to get it popped. So I think it's important to consider if you've got damaged greens, it's time to get in there, start prepping those seed beds. It looks like the weather's going to start getting on our side. And it looks like the sooner you get after this, the better off you're going to be. Nothing's going to happen until we start to get uh, warm temperatures. But for sure, uh, we want to start getting at the seeding now. Now, Carl, as I pass it to you, uh, I will say, that historically there hasn't been a lot of information shared about Augusta National. And you're going to tell us, not this week, because they're in Texas this week, but next week when we meet, they'll be underway at the Masters. And I thought it was interesting. They've built underground tunnels uh, on the property to be able to move things around underneath the people. Uh, so I think, Carl, as I pass it to you, I'm really fascinated to see uh, what you're going to share with us to get everybody excited about the Masters this year, because as you bring your slides up, I'll tell you, this is one of those times of the year where golfers watch it on TV and then they go out and they're like, how come I don't have this? Yeah. Or the open happens right in June. And it's like, how come our golf course doesn't look like this? So I know you're going to take us through uh, number one, what Augusta does and number two, how bad uh, normal golfers are compared to really good golfers, which of course you're among the ranks. So thanks for taking us through this. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. Um, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and what we see on TV isn't what we as, as average golfers probably want or need in our golf experience. Um, but really up here in the Northeast, as I've grown in my early childhood and now you know, young adulthood, the Masters really represents the kind of the, the beginning of spring golf. And I think for a lot of us Northeastern golfers, we're stuck in the snow and the cold and, and we hear the piano sound and we see the green grass and they tell us we are invited to watch the Masters. It's, it's go time for spring golf. Uh, so one of my favorite things is, is watching the on the range coverage. Now you can watch so many parts of Augusta National. Um, but, but the other thing I, I think is synonymous with Augusta National is the just kind of the pinnacle of agronomy. Right, we, we see the green speeds. Um, I, I was looking around trying to find some agronomic data. Okay, is there anything, little tidbits out there that, that give us an insight into how they manage? Um, there are published uh, turf mowing heights. Um, you know, pretty pretty standard. It says the greens here are cut at 125. Uh, maybe I don't believe that so that's much. High. That's, that's high, that's high. These, these are, again, just reported. Um, but when we watch, we can see the green speeds are fast. And that's kind of a calling card of Augusta National. Um, but one of the interesting things I, I, I found, uh, some people who apparently have knowledge of the situation, they purposely manage their green speeds on different greens to different standards. Uh, and the thinking behind that is, and, and we've seen this in action at major championships, Frank, uh, people setting up the golf course have an intuitive feel of how that green should play given the slopes and the architecture. 
so what I imagine is going on at Augusta is certain greens that have a lot of slope and, and they want balls to use that slope and finish in certain areas. They probably keep those greens a little bit slower, maybe on the 12 foot side for, for Augusta National. Whereas uh, some of the flatter greens, bigger greens probably are a little bit faster. Uh, and the idea there is trying to get all these greens to feel, quote unquote, feel the same speed for, for the players playing them. Uh, obviously, a lot of the golf courses, that if you're listening and you have a golf course, that's probably not feasible to maintain every green to a certain standard like that. Um, but that sort of site-specific idea is what we want to get people moving towards. Um, but maybe more, one of the more noticeable things uh, is the way they mow these fairways. In the background here, you see about 10 fairway mowers going after it all in one direction, all towards the green. Uh, you'll hear announcers talk about how this slows the golf ball down. It, it reduces the distances the pros can hit it. Um, so I was interested, at, you know, is there any data on that? It turns out there is buried in the USGA distance report. Uh, everybody's busy yelling about if the ball goes too far or not. There's some really cool data buried in that report uh, from PGA Tour sites looking at mowing with or against the grain and how that affects rollout. Uh, and it's really not that much. It's between three to 10 yards. It depends on turf species. Uh, zoysia, there's a bigger effect than, than poa annua or perennial ryegrass, which is uh, the grass will see the masters. So this is probably more of a soil moisture uh, effect on the rollout that you'll see at Augusta National. Um, but mowing into the grain from the from the green to the tee, uh, what you'll hear the players talk about is uh, the the iron play, and that requires a lot more um, per, uh, consistency, accuracy in the strike. There's not enough. Um, there's not as much margin for error when you're hitting into the grain. We know this chipping into Bermuda grain. If you've ever done that. That is a very highly skilled technique. Um, and so what you see at the Masters is you always see the best iron players excel at Augusta. And, and probably a part of that is these fairways being mowed into them the whole way. Um, Sergio Garcia's Tiger Woods have always done well at the Masters. You'll probably see, if you're looking for my picks, Cameron Smith, Russell Henley, Tom Hoagie is a name you probably don't know, but those guys are really good iron players. And I would guess probably do well at Augusta. Um, and then, you know, one little thing, of, of course, Augusta has their own kinds of mowers. You'll see the quote here. They developed a mower um, that basically has one side lower than the other, and they run this right on the edge of the green edge and the collar edge. And this helps smooth out the transition from the green to the collar. Uh, so again, a very little detail and, and really is kind of that pinnacle agronomy um, that we all look at on TV in the spring and up here in, in our, our northern brains are like, oh man, that's be so good. Uh, why don't I get out there on the golf course? Um, so we use, we use some data from the Pellucid Corporation um, that tells us during any day of the year, uh, what would the expected rounds number be based on the weather you're given? So if it's a nice sunny day, you can do a lot of rounds. Um, and when we look at this data on the left, we see in the spring months, right, March, April, and May, there's a ton of variability in, in the amount of rounds we can do. Capacity is what we call it given the weather, right? So we can do as much as 170% more than average or almost 100% uh, less than average, right? So there's huge variability in our spring season. And this again revolves around this April date and the masters and people getting momentum going out to the golf course. Uh, it's important to know that, that that generates momentum from your golfers in the Northeast, but the weather is really gonna drive what you can actually do with that momentum. Uh, on the right side of the screen, you see summer months, June and July, a lot less variability in what we can do. So for our daily fee golf courses who can really make a lot of their revenue in the shoulders of the season, 
the weather is going to drive all this, all that early season revenue. Uh, and unfortunately, we have been dealt a poor hand this year. Um, so again, we're, we're beating a dead horse here. You can see on the screen winter injury damage, right? Uh, that's been a big concern. That requires uh, recovery. It requires keeping golfers off of these areas. That's not a good thing if you're trying to get spring golf. Um, we've been on a temperature roller coaster ride here. I've got some data on the bottom of the screen um, where you can really see how we've been outside of our normal range, this brown range. We spent a lot of time in March outside of that range, whether it's been above or below, most recently below, um, none of which uh, bodes well for getting our golf courses prepped for golfers here in the spring. Um, and, and just to you know, see where we were on our playability and our, our turf plots went out yesterday. Uh, we're stimping at a cool six feet and nine inches. Uh, we're, we're not super smooth either. We're six out of 10 on the bobble test. Um, so again, this is really going towards, hey, we're seeing Augusta on TV, but our golfers out here should not be expecting golf course conditions uh, like Augusta National. Um, so of course, along, I've got some data here, pros versus Joes, right? The pros are playing a 7,400 yard golf course. They're hitting it 290 yards. They hit about 10 greens per round. Our average golfers are playing a, maybe a 6,100 yard course. It actually should be shorter. Uh, they hit it about 210 yards and they barely hit five or six screens around. So really what they need and what they should be looking for out of a golf experience is probably not what's on television. Um, so, so what do they want? And, and I've been interested in this for a while. Have we surveyed golfers on, on what they want? And it turns out some folks in Europe have uh, a couple studies, one here from Myers Co College. Um, and the University of Copenhagen. So asking kind of about green speed. Hey, how important is green speed? Uh, so in this Myers Coast study, about 70% of folks said that green speed is important. And that makes sense, right? People, people golfers generally like faster greens, uh, but they also pose the same question about smoothness. Okay, do smooth greens make a difference um, in your golf experience? And over 90% of golfers indicated that smoothness was very important or important. So smoothness is really king when you're looking at speed versus smoothness. Uh, same thing was found in this uh, study. It's part of the Scandinavian Turfgrass uh, Research Foundation. About 75% of people said even roll was a large factor in their experience. Only 35% of people said this green speed is a large factor, right? And, and the other thing when you look at this data is it's age and ability dependent. So uh, younger and lower handicap players they're going to put more emphasis on green speed. The older and, and uh, higher handicapped players care more about the evenness of roll. Uh, we see a similar thing in fairway lies. So they asked, do you want the ball to be carried by the grass, kind of teed up, cushioned, or would you like it to lie close to the ground? Again, we see an age response here with uh, predominantly people saying they want the ball carried by the grass. Um, at Augusta National, you're going to see the ball very tight to the surface, and that's what the pros like. That's what the high... The, uh, the low handicap golfers like, uh, but generally average golfers, older golfers, they like a little bit of tea, a little bit of forgiveness um, when you're creating a fairway lie. And then when you just look at things, not even uh, golf condition related, um, good company, right? That's the number one thing they said is central to their enjoyment of the game of golf. Good company, good weather, pace of play, right? Those are the top three things uh, green speed came in fifth here. So what I'm trying to underline here is, is when people are getting out onto your golf course after seeing the Masters this week, um, it's not about green speed. It's not about that elite conditioning. It's about being outside when it's 45 degrees and sunny. It's about 
spending time with, with friends and family, uh, trying to play a game of golf in, in a reasonable amount of time. Um, now, this, is, this can be specific to your region. So all that data is from, from Europe. Uh, if we're thinking about a US golfer, they probably have a different mindset. Uh, and even within New York, there's probably a different mindset. So again, this is data from the Pellucid Corporation uh, that we use for our state park uh, golf courses. Down in Long Island, about 65% of the surrounding um, clubs around Bethpage State Park are private. When you look at Syracuse, uh, a lot of the golf courses, most of them are public and there's a pretty even distribution between uh, kind of high price point public and low price point public. Uh, so, so your golfer, and what I'm trying to get at here is what do your golfers want? You know, how old are they? What sort of playing ability are they? Um, have you noticed trends change? I think, Frank, you and I have noticed uh, trends in, in the people we're seeing on golf courses have changed. So I think all this should be considered into how you manage the golf course, especially coming out, out here into spring. And uh, where I want to transition the conversation, Frank, is should clubs be surveying their members on what they like in a golf course experience? And how would that relate to them establishing uh, sort of maintenance standards? We see that the peak of, of maintenance standards at Augusta uh, how can we use maybe club survey data to um, establish these sort of standards for our own golf courses? I'll tell you, Carl, th this is wonderful. The first couple of things I'd start with is the following. How much of this matters when people aren't actually playing the golf course correctly? A couple of things come to mind. I looked at the distance report from a couple of years ago. And one of the things that jumped out at me, they have this wonderful timeline of, how the game has progressed since hollow drivers through, you know, all the way through uh, changing the grooves. And, and one of the things that uh, you notice is to your point, the corn ferry tour kids hit it further than the pros, the PGA tour guys. So the young guys are already bombing it past the big guys. So distance is going to continue to be an issue. When you said, I thought it was, you, you know, you sort of went through it, but a, a tour pro hits on average 10 greens in regulation per round. You're saying uh, a, a regular golfer hits five greens, but they're not hitting those greens from the same distance. In other words, the five green hit is from what? 120 yards? How far is that? It's, it's, well, they're still playing courses that are longer than they should be playing. So from 6,100 yards, uh, you know, the average golfer is maybe hitting a 170, 160 yard approach, but for them, that's a five iron. And when you look at PGA tour stats, very rarely are pros hitting five irons into par fours. Um, so, so part of them, and maybe what a superintendent can do, especially early in the season, when golfers are getting their legs under them, move the tees up, move the tees up. Uh, really, the USGA says average golfers should be hit, playing from about 5,700 yards. At a lot of courses, that's the forward tees. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't like calling them ladies tees. I like calling them forward tees because a lot of people should be playing them, not just yeah. ladies. It's, it's really yeah. about um, playing a course that's going to give you a, a couple wedges into par fours around, a couple nine irons. Very rarely do I see average golfers having short irons in because they're playing too long. Yeah. Um, so, so to your point, Frank, the course setup and, and maybe trying to get some more firmness in the fairways, trying to get some more rollout, get them closer to the green, those sorts of things can make the experience better for the average golfer because it's going to make it easier. And, That's right. and there's a saying, if you're making too many birdies and you're having too much fun, you can, you can play longer tees. 
Uh, and people very rarely do that. Once they figure out they can have a lot of fun from forward tees, it makes the experience a lot better. And I, you know, the other thing I think, Carl, that's worth mentioning as we, you know, wrap up around the, the confluence of, you know, you've got injured grass or it's a slow spring and they're watching, you know, golf in, in Southern California or golf in Georgia. And I think it's really important to understand that our golf courses up here from a data perspective of what we would consider to be peak conditioning is months from now. It's literally months. It's literally months from now. Yeah. So, you know, there's a certain amount that every golf course superintendent should be doing in the spring to, you know, get the grass in shape, get good turf cover, get the place uh, looking sharp and detailed up, and then slowly start to shift to, uh, you know, playing performance and maximizing and getting to that peak performance. And, and one of the things we know with Daniel Bluegrass is you can actually get it going pretty good in the spring under really good conditions. It really doesn't struggle very much when the weather is on your side. Uh, bent grass is going to have a little bit more trouble, right? It's going to be slower to wake up. So I think it's really important when anybody approaches you on a first tee to practice green and you're having this conversation, hey, how about Augusta? It's like, yeah, man, I can't wait to, I would just say, I can't wait till we're at peak performance, yeah. right? Because they're turning on a TV, Carl, every freaking week and that's the peak conditioning. You know, you talked last week about how Chris Tritabaugh at Hazeltine uses those metrics for determining when he's where he wants to be. And I think we need to be realistic with our golfers that unless they're spending tons of money, it's hard to get the peak performance April 1st. Yeah. <laughs> you know what and, I mean? And, and especially with this winter injury stuff, Frank, and, yeah. and we, had, we got some comments from Blake uh, talking about how covers have been very useful for him, even in the last week when we haven't had 100%. ideal air temperatures. Yeah. Um, the other thing he's saying is, is he got, he has some areas uh, of POA where they're maybe kind of coming back now. Should he core aerate those uh, and, and try and push uh, regrowth through that? Or if he's seeing some of that come up, should he just let that ride and, and try and grow what's what's coming back up? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And the answer to me is 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 really it's a bit of a guess. You got to figure out if I if, if I start to get the weather on my side, will the plants I see there uh, fill in effectively? Yeah. If we don't think they will, and my guess is they won't. Because, you know, these early plants are, are very tiller oriented. They're not going to start producing lateral growth and start pegging in like a, like a stoloniferous grass or a more perennial type. I, I think right now it's going to be critical to do what you can to get early, you know, as early cover, quick cover as you can. And annual bluegrass thrives, it thrives in disturbance. And it will get from a seed to a few tillers in a couple of weeks. So I think based on what Zach is showing in that data for other grasses, we're best, even with grass coming up, unless it's pretty tight already, to, to bust it up, create a seed bed and get it going. Yeah. Great yeah. question. Thanks. This is great stuff, Carl. Get us out of here. Yep. I, I think uh, what I'll say, you know, you're talking about peak performance, Frank. If, if a golfer comes up to you, this could be a line you can use if you're superintendent here in the Northeast coming up. If a golfer says, hey, why aren't the greens better? Uh, you can say, hey, why aren't you in peak condition right now? I just saw you hit that iron shot and it wasn't very good. You're not in peak condition either. So, well, and that's why you and I aren't golf course superintendents, Carl, because that yeah, is the exact it. thing you don't say to those people. So maybe that'll, that'll be something. Yeah, don't say that. Say it under your breath, maybe. Um, 
But uh, th thanks everybody for watching today's show. A little master's preview for you guys. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the Lawn and Landscape Show. We're going to be talking to uh, Dr. Carl Guillard of UConn. He's got some really interesting soil testing uh, research he'll talk about tomorrow. Uh, a regional MLSN project for those who know what that is. So uh, tune in for that. Um, but for now, thank you. Take care and uh, see you in a bit. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.